Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa so, um, for those of you who might not have been here in the last couple of weeks, I've been uh, working my way through the uh, first few discourses of the Buddha. Um, so the first week I did the... the uh, the turning of the wheel, the Four Noble, the teaching on the Four Noble Truths, and then uh, last week we did the uh, Anatta Lakana Sutta, the teachings on selflessness. And so um, today, uh, not surprisingly, we go to the, we have the, I thought I'd talk about the third uh, sutta, or the third formal teaching of the, of the Buddha, which is called the Fire Sermon. Well, in the, uh, in the Western parlance, I think it was T.S. Eliot gave it that particular name. Um, I remember when I came back from uh, Thailand, uh, I'd, uh, I was more familiar with T.S. Eliot than I was with, with Buddhist scriptures. And I came back after a couple of years in the monastery in Thailand and came to England. And, and um, there was a, a very scholarly monk that we had in the community there in England, a, a Swedish monk. And uh, he knew a lot more about Pali and the scriptures than the rest of us. So I asked him um, where I could find the, the fire sermon in the, in the scriptures. And uh, so I expected to find something that was a, sort of a close parallel to what T.S. Eliot had come up with and was <laughs> somewhat taken aback by uh, the very scanty relationship between the two. But uh, it's in the, his uh, poem, The Wasteland, um, T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland. And there's one of the sections, I think it's the third or the fourth, which is called the fire sermon. And it hinges around this, uh, this idea of burning. Burning, burning. And the only, uh, the, the kind of key element is, uh, he ties it up with a quotation from St. Augustine, which is, which is uh, uh, to Carthage, then I came. And it's, uh, the whole of the quote is, to Carthage, then I came, where a cauldron of unholy loves rang about mine ears. Uh, it's a phrase that stuck in my mind, a cauldron of unholy loves. <laughs> so Carthage was obviously um, something like the tenderloin of the, of the, uh, the first few centuries AD. So, uh, but this principle of, of uh, burning and uh, fire being associated with the, the passions and um, cauldrons of unholy loves that we are very familiar with in one way or another, uh, this is what uh, this, the Sutta really talks about in, in its essence. Now, just as, uh, as um, like the, the, uh, the, turning, the, the teaching on the, of the turning of the wheel, the Four Noble Truths, it has the four truths as its basis. And then last week, the, the teaching that I was describing is based around what's called the five khandhas, or the five um, categories of body and mind then um, the Buddha was very keen on, on having things in neat chunks with, that you could remember by numbers and having neat headings. And so this is based around the six senses. And these are all uh, parts of the, all the bases of insight 
um, the, the, the different groups of, of, um, of uh, qualities that the Buddha talked about as the, what's called the basis of insight, that which we derive insight and liberation, understanding from, that uh, the, uh, the six senses is, uh, is one of those groups. The other two are the, what are called the spiritual faculties, the indriyas, that's uh, faith, energy, mindfulness, uh, concentration and wisdom, and the quality of knowing. And the last one is called uh, dependent origination. And these are all different formats that the Buddha used to describe the same basic insights or to elaborate or give a different context for the basic liberating insight that is the underpinning of, of his whole teaching. So the fire sermon uh, revolves around a contemplation of the six senses, the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. And the, um, to give you a little bit of background to the, the sutta, um, this one has a, quite a bit more of a, of a, of a, of a prologue to it. Uh, this is one of the most, um, uh, kind of one of the more amusing incidents that happen that you find in the, in the Pali canon. Actually, the, 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 the Pali scriptures are, are riddled with humor. I am told. <laughs> Oftentimes you have, to be, you have to be a Pali speaker to get the joke because it's filled with like double meanings and um, it, it kind of idioms and implications and, and sort of double entendres that, uh, that uh, carry a particular message or, or have a particular flavor. But if you're not an Indian speaker, you tend to, to miss them. But this particular succession of, uh, of incidents running up to the giving of this, this teaching is one of the more kind of bizarre and... Uh, and uh, amazing. So if you're not into miraculous powers and uh, uh, extraordinary events, then please uh, turn, turn off for five minutes. Because <laughs> what happens with this? Uh, the Buddha, this is, happens just after his enlightenment. And uh, he, is be, he becomes aware in his mind that there's um, a, uh, a leader of a group of, uh, of fire worshippers uh, who is living nearby, who has... Um, got a lot of spiritual qualities, but is caught up in some, uh, some particularly meaty wrong views or, or deluded opinions. And so he decides to see if um, he can uh, help uh, guide this fellow or this, this fellow can make any use of, of his insight. And this is in the, the early on in the Buddha's career, so he tended to more approach people and, and, um, and sort of be uh, kind of more overtly uh, uh, kind of forward in the way that he operated. And also, he, later on in his career, he, he displayed much, much less in the way of psychic powers. But on this occasion, he was, he was very, very free with them. So anyway, he comes to, upon this, uh, this fellow who's called uh, Uruvela Kasapa. Uruvela is near the place where the Buddha was enlightened, near Gaya, Bodh Gaya. And he's called Uruvela Kasapa. And so the, the Buddha meets him, and, um, and, he, uh, uh, and he asks, um, and just, he, doesn't, he doesn't present himself as any kind of extraordinary being, but by his, his whole manner and his appearance, uh, uh, the, uh, the fire worshipper recognizes that this fellow's got, got something going for him. He's very tall, uh, very clear-eyed, very radiant, kind of composed, serene being. And then, so the Buddha asks him, can I stay in, uh, in your hermitage for tonight? Um, I'd like to stay in the, in what, in the, what's called the fire chamber or the, the firehouse. This is like a, a sweat lodge that they, people would have in those days. And they said, well, certainly you can do, but there's a, uh, there's a dragon that lives in there that will um, certainly kill you if you try and spend the night in there. It's very ferocious and, and malevolent. And the Buddha says, well, I, I'd like to spend the night in there anyway. And so then um, 
I think, oh well, well, we'll do the funeral for you in the morning. <laughs> no problem. So anyway, the Buddha goes in and spends the night there and then it goes into long descriptions of his battle with this, what's called a naga. It's like a, a dragon, this naga serpent. And he, basically he ends up taming the naga and he comes out of the fire chamber in the morning, not, not even singed, and with the naga shrunk down and, and in his, inside his arms bowl, his, uh, his begging bowl, and says to, to Uruvela Kasala, well, here's the naga, you know. <laughs> it didn't have much of an effect. You know, here's your naga who is so mighty and powerful and dangerous. And Kasala thinks, hmm, this, great, this is certainly a great monk, and he's very mighty and powerful, but he's not really an arahant. He's not an enlightened being like me. And then, um, but he's obviously a bit on edge about this, and so um, a few days later they're due to have a big festival. And so that uh, he thinks, well, I better be a shame if this, big, you know, this great monk is around and, and he kind of outshines me at this festival. I'm supposed to be the great enlightened sage, and this fellow might um, show me up in public. And so the Buddha reads his mind and then, and then disappears and doesn't show up that day. And so um, the next day after, after the, uh, the festival is over, then Kasapa says to him, um, where, where did you go to? Um, you know, that you didn't come yesterday. And the Buddha said, well, I realized that you were afraid that I might show you up in public, and so that I stayed away. So this makes it even worse for Uruvela Kasapa. And says, well, okay, well, maybe he did read my mind, but he's not really an arahant like me. And then you get this long succession of, of more extraordinary and, and wild and miraculous things that the Buddha does. Um, he goes off to um, the, uh, the continent, the Uttarakuru in the far north, and brings back this sort of... Uh, magical fruits and um, when the, uh, the fire worshippers, because Uruvela Kasapa has like 500 disciples and they, they have to bathe in the river and it gets to the cold season of the year and then and he, the Buddha notices all the fire worshippers shivering and shaking by the side of the riverbank and he conjures up 500 um, fires, braziers for the, for the, uh, the fire worshippers to warm themselves by and then he um, he does a, a whole series of other extraordinary uh, procedures, after each one of which the thought passes through the mind of Uruvela Kasapa. Well, the great monk is certainly mighty and powerful, but he's not really an arahant like me. So anyway, the final, finally, after weeks and weeks of this, um, there's a great flood, and um, then uh, there's the water rises, and, and so the whole district is being washed out, and so then the Kasapa gets worried about the Buddha and says, oh, well, he was just living in that little hut down by the river. He's going to get washed away. So they went down there in a boat to see if he could find him. And rather than the Buddha having been washed away by the flood, he's, he's, walk, he's doing walking meditation on the ground and all the water is sort of uh, parted around him, like in the, uh, the Red Sea in um, a Cecil B. DeMille movie. And so the Buddha is just calmly walking up and down with the water swirling all around him, kind of feet deep. And, uh, and, uh, and Kasava comes up in his little boat and says, are you all right? And he says, yes, I'm fine. <laughs> and um, and Uruvela Kasava looks down and thinks, well, the great monk is certainly mighty and powerful, but he's not really an arahant like me. And the Buddha realizes this fellow is totally hopeless. <laughs> so he rises up in the air, out, of the, out, of the, un, out from below the, the water level, uh, floats across, stands on the edge of the boat, which in itself is quite an achievement. And... Um, and then uh, and, uh, he realizes that Kasapa is still hanging on to this thought, and so he says to him, okay, well, I suppose I better give him a shock. And he says to him, Kasapa, you are neither an arahant nor on the path to becoming an arahant, nor are you doing anything that could possibly bring you onto the path of being an arahant. 
So uh, Uruvela Kasapu at this point realizes that he's gone a bit too far and says, okay, I admit. <laughs> and he bows to the Buddha and asks for instruction. But anyway, he becomes very inspired by the Buddha and says, I want to become your disciple. And the Buddha says, well, you can't just do this. You're in charge of 500 fire worshippers. You can't just convert to, you know, and follow me. And what about them? So then Kasapu asks his followers and, and they say, well, actually, <coughs> we've had a, a lot of faith in the great monk for quite a while now. <laughs> And so we're very happy to, um, to follow him. And uh, so they all cut off their, their matted hair, they all had dreadlocks, cut off all their dreadlocks and threw all of their gear for the, the fire sacrifice into the river and became, uh, became followers of the Buddha, became, uh, became bhikkhus. So then, um, just down the river, the uh, Uruvela Kasava had a brother who was called a Kasava of the river, who had 300 disciples. And he sees all these dreadlocks and bits and pieces of the fire sacrifice floating down the river. And he thinks, oh dear, maybe some disaster has befallen my brother. So he sends off some messengers to, to find out what's happened. And uh, they, they, uh, the other followers tell them. And you know, they say, well, is this better than what we're doing? And they say, oh yes, this is better. So then Kasapur uh, of the river then does the same. And he, he uh, chops off his dreadlocks, as do his 300 disciples. And they throw all their stuff into the river. And a little further down the river, Buddhists always do everything in threes, there's a third brother who's called Kasapur of Gaya. And then he sees, he has 200, uh, 200 disciples. And uh, he also is a, a fire worshipper. And so he sees all the dreadlocks and stuff floating down the river. And he, and he goes, oh dear, maybe some disaster has befallen my brother. And the same thing happens, he sends a messenger and, they, and he says, you know, are you all right? And they say, yes, we are all right. And then they explain what's happened. They say, well, is this, is this better? And they say, oh yes, this is better. So he and, and his 200 disciples all become uh, bhikkhus, all become disciples of the Buddha. So then there we are with the, the setting. Now you must understand this is to be taken as a meaningful myth rather than history. <laughs> if, you're, if credibility is being stretched beyond elastic limits, then Buddhist scriptures are very definitely um, cast in a mythological form. They're not supposed to be literally, sort of scientifically accurate. Just there for reflection and for they're kind of creating symbols and patterns and ideas for us to uh, consider and, and, uh, and reflect upon. So anyway, then uh, these, a thousand, uh, these thousand monks then joining with the Buddha, then it's uh, on this occasion as they're walking along as a, a group together and as the, the commentaries say that it was when they're looking down from a, a ridge into the valley and seeing a vast forest fire burning down below them, then the Buddha um, taught, uh, gave this discourse and, uh, and addressed the, the monks. And often you find that the Buddha used the, the, um, the way of life of a person, their livelihood or their position in society or some particular attribute that they had as a, a, a medium, as a, um, uh, a kind of an, an analogy for teaching them. Like you, a farmer, he would talk about plowing and sowing and a king, he would talk about ruling. And so for the fire worshippers, and the forest fire burning, he used the, an, the, the analogy of fire. Now, what, uh, the way that the, the teaching begins, the sutta begins, is, is a sabang bhikkhave aditang, which means all is burning bhikkhus. Everything is burning. And then he says, what is, what is the all that is burning? And then he, uh, he goes on to describe, says, the eye is burning. Visible forms are burning. Um, the whole process of seeing is burning. And the feelings, pleasant, painful, or, or neutral, that arise from the action of seeing, 
these are all burning. And what are they burning with? They're burning with the fires of greed, the fires of hatred, the fires of delusion. They're burning with the fires of birth, of aging, the fires of death. They burn with the fires of sorrow, weeping, pain, grief, the fires of despair. And so too with the ear. So the ear is burning, sounds are burning. The, uh, the process of hearing itself is burning. And so too with the feelings. And then through the, all of the six senses, the tongue, the nose, the body, physical sensations. The mind is burning and uh, mental phenomena. In, uh, in the Buddhist terminology, the mind is simply the sixth sense. The, the brain is the, is the organ of perception uh, which perceives thoughts and feelings, ideas, so that there's no distinction that the, between um, like the thinking mental processes and the other senses. Like the, the thinking process is like a coordinator of the other five senses, but the brain, the mind, is seen as, as simply the sixth sense. So you always have eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind in the format of, of talking about the sense world. And the object that the, the mind perceives is, is dhamma, or as a phenomena, mental phenomena, in this case. So then that, this section of the sutta then finishes with the, the, the mind is burning, mental phenomena are burning. The, uh, the whole action of cognition, cognizing, is, uh, is burning. And uh, the feelings of pleasant, painful, or neutral that arise from the whole process of cognition, these are burning with greed, hatred, and delusion, and so forth. Now again, um, these, are, these are not like absolute statements. These are not like uh, judgments. And you might be thinking, well, you know, I can think of some nice things to look at. I can think of some beautiful sounds that are not burning. <laughs> I can think, you know, what's so bad about birth? And, and aging can be quite beautiful too. <laughs> but uh, these are not like uh, absolute statements, but more um, saying that there is this quality of, of, um, of obsession of um, the mind being entangled, the mind being inflamed, the mind being caught up, enmeshed, um, and in a state of, of heatedness around these different uh, uh, aspects of our, of our sensory world, the eye, the ear, the nose, tongue, body, mind. So these are not like saying, it's always like this in all cases, or that um, the, uh, anything that we see is inherently impure, but it's just uh, pointing out that associated with with seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, smelling, touching, that these passions, passions arise. And these are what causes distress, what causes alienation, what causes a feeling of disharmony and uh, discord with life. So he gets to the end of that section, and then he says, seeing thus, the wise noble disciple becomes dispassionate towards the eye, becomes dispassionate towards visible forms, becomes dispassionate towards the, uh, the action of seeing itself, and towards the feelings of the uh, pleasant, painful, or neutral that arise uh, with the, the seeing process. And so too with all the other, uh, the other five senses, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. Uh, this quality of dispassion arising towards uh, each of the senses. And then the, the final paragraph is that um, uh, becoming dispassionate, then fear and desire fades away. When fear and desire, when these fade away, then the heart is released. When the heart is released, there is the knowledge. There is release. There is liberation. There is the knowledge. This is the end. There is nothing more for me to do. My work is complete. 
and uh, the uh, at this uh, at this point at that uh, that realization at that completion of the of the discourse then it said uh, that all 1000 of the uh, of the bhikkhus the former fire worshippers every single one of them became totally enlightened so uh, I'm not asking you to believe this. <laughs> this might seem to, to be sort of uh, taking you to be credulous. And, uh, but uh, again, I, it's one, one looks at these all in symbolic or um, mythological terms. Not to say that it might not actually have happened. I'm not saying that this is untrue. But just uh, one is looking at it with an elastic vision, if you like. One can mix a, <laughs> mix a metaphor like that. A kind of fuzzy vision, if you like. It's not the, the eye of the, hard, of the hard-nosed skeptic can, uh, can uh, put on some uh, fuzzy glasses. So that uh, on that, on that um, description, you know, that what, is being, uh, what is being portrayed then is, uh, is a simple process of, of um, the uh, development of insight. The, uh, the process of liberation occurring around contemplating the six senses and how they work and how they, how they become uh, causes of suffering and how they, when, when there is a quality of dispassion, that they, uh, the eye, the things we see, the beautiful and ugly things, the beautiful and, and, and ugly sounds and flavors, events, uh, physical sensations, these cease to, to um, carry us away, cease to obsess, cease to terrify, cease to have um, the ability to, to uh, disturb or, or um, uh, corrupt or interfere with uh, the realization of the true nature of mind. Now, you, you might notice that the whole thing hinges around that one little sentence in the middle, seeing thus, the wise, noble disciple becomes dispassionate. So, well, that's very nice to say, you know, half a dozen words or eight or ten words, but... Um, <coughs> It's like a hinge on a door. It's like a, you know, it's, a, it's just a small bit of the door, but if the door happens to be you know, a foot thick and locked, <laughs> and uh, even if you've got it unlocked, if, if the door hasn't got a hinge, you can't open it. And the whole of this process hinges on that one, that one aspect of seeing thus the wise, noble disciple. Now, when it, when we, when it says seeing, um, now, it's not just comprehending. Now, just in this few minutes of describing this, you know, one might be able to comprehend this process and see that it, you know, it hangs together. Okay, you know, I, can, I can follow the, the, the reasoning of it, the logic. Um, but it's not just a matter of comprehending the idea. It's much more of a, a penetration of it, a full um, and uh, profound understanding to, uh, to, uh, like a, to truly realize that. It's like the difference between, um, say, hearing a language, like if I, if I was speaking in French or in Thai, you might be able to recognize, oh, that's Thai language or that's French, but not actually to be able to understand the meaning. So you might be able to recognize the, as- the external aspect of it, but not be able to penetrate the meaning. So that when we use a term like seeing thus, it's not just a matter of comprehending the, the mechanics of it, but it's actually um, an action. A whole, uh, a whole transformation that is involved, whereby there's a, um, like a, a profound intuition, and that um, in that 
in that intuition, what you have is a, um, a realization of the, the painful results of identification. The painful results of, of hanging on to sights and sounds, to thoughts and to physical sensations, to flavors, to odors. That it's like a, a true recognition of, well, if I do this, that results. Do I really want to bother? This is painful. Why do I keep doing this? And then the response of, of, uh, of letting go, of releasing that, of allowing that to, to uh, be seen as just an aspect of nature rather than something that is mine that I've got to follow or I've got to escape, but just to drop the process of identification with it. Uh, the um, uh, uh, one thing that crossed my mind. This was something that uh, that uh, one of uh, the monks in England pointed out. Ajahn Sajito, who's uh, um, has a, an astute an astute eye. The the Thai word for a dis- for a disciple is a luxit. I'm not quite sure of the etymology of it in Thai. But someone asked him. Someone asked him because um, we kept because in monastic vocabulary, this sort of you often get a number of words that get included in. Um, ordinary sort of everyday vernacular and so you would say oh so and so is a luxit of, of Ajahn Chah or is a luxit of, of this teacher or is a luxit of that teacher and so someone was, um, was looking, sitting, was new to the monastery and was sitting there looking very puzzled and they said what is a luxit? and uh, Ajahn Sajita said oh, a luxit it means a disciple it's, uh, it means that you, you, you look and you sit <laughs> and this is known as folk etymology <laughs> it doesn't actually have any basis in real life, but it, it fits quite well. So that someone who's a disciple, you sit and you look. You look and you sit. And um, so that's really what uh, you know, this uh, one is, is doing. Like the wise, noble disciple looks and sits. And that this is how we really bring about this, this kind of um, profound seeing. Like it's only by sitting, by contemplating, by meditating and observing the results of what we do. Not out of a critical uh, place, not thinking, oh, I shouldn't be like this, and I keep doing that, and this is a stupid obsession, and I, I should stop it, and I could, and I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Woe is me. Um, to, just to step back from that and see that the, here is the, the, should, the should demon. Someone said to me today, should is the first, lear- the first word I learned to say. <laughs> so I thought it was poignant observation in life. <laughs> Catholic. <laughs> hmm? Presbyterians, it works too. Huh? <laughs> so, um, but that's, uh, that's the process whereby we bring that about. And, um, and then this word dispassion is also worth contemplating. Seeing thus, the wise, noble disciple becomes dispassionate. Now, dispassion, I, I've, I've noticed, particularly in, in uh, the USA, particularly in California, dispassion is something like professional wimpishness. <laughs> the, the, to, to talk about dispassion means that you, you have decided to become a total wimp and to, to dilute all your experience and your feelings towards life to the point where you are uh, like a soft, wet lump and you don't really feel very much about anything at all, and if you do, then you feel embarrassed about it. 
and so that um, dispassion is, has got a really bad press, and that um, and in a way it's it's not a bad thing because uh, you know, and our culture has tended to to revere to some extent the, you know, those who live passionately, those who who live life to the hilt, the. Uh, Jack Kerouac's and Neil Cassidy's. Even, they even have a street named after Jack Kerouac now, down by City Lights Bookstore. Jack Kerouac Alley. <laughs> and Neil Cassidy, his mate on, on the road, and uh, people like Dylan Thomas. Tallulah Bankhead. My candle burns at both its ends, it will not last the night, but oh my foes and oh my friends, it gives a lovely light. <laughs> I think that's Tallulah's offering to the poetic world. And, hmm? That was Emily Dickinson. Oh, I think Tallulah quoted her then. <laughs> anyway, poetic license I'm employing here. So, uh, but anyway, one observes that even though we might sort of revere the glory and the, the blaze that um, people who live life to the hilt in that way, most of them seem to have ended their days um, with a very bad liver and, <laughs> and um, a few other problems to go along with it. So, uh, you know, not that I condemn that, that way of life, but certainly it, it has its, its downside. And so that certainly within the Buddhist, the Buddhist way of, uh, of looking at things, the way to happiness and the way to fulfillment and to uh, wholeness as a human being is, is not that, that path. That, um, that is, is, uh, is not going to um, really do the trick. So that uh, what we talk about more, the diff- we talk about this uh, whole aspect of fire in a different way. So that uh, what we talk about more, the diff- we talk about this uh, whole aspect of fire in a different way. There's one aspect of it, which is, rather than kind of burning and blazing brightly, is the containing fire. Like the whole idea of contained fire is very much part of the whole Buddhist and and yogic uh, tradition. Um, So that like um, using the body energy, the energy of body and mind, containing it, controlling it, guiding it, uh, uh, raising it up from the the lower and uh, more um, uh, animal-based urges and and, um, tendencies towards uh, aggression and uh, sexual desire, uh, willfulness, uh, self-centeredness, to, to, to transform that energy, to raise it up in, through meditation or through, through yogas of one sort or another, and to transform it into um, energy which helps to illuminate one's whole being. Or, uh, and, and then, because uh, one, one's not condemning fire per se, because the sutta is not talking about that fire is evil, but just the fire when it's out of control. So in some respects it's talking about containing fire. And so like the, the, the precepts, the, the, fire, the moral precepts that we live by uh, in the Buddhist community, these are also talked about in, in terms of containing fire, containing the, uh, the fire of, um, uh, of uh, our tendencies to, to flow out into acquisition, into aggression, into um, uh, dishonesty, one sort or another, to pleasure-seeking and so forth, to contain that energy and control it and guide it and, and use it, again, to help illuminate the mind rather than flowing out in a, in a wasteful and dangerous and uh, destructive way. And so, in, in, in a similar way, like, uh, like the sort of fire of electricity, 
you know, this is the, there also is contained and, and controlled fire, or, or um, like the candles. You know, this is fire when it's in a in a, a controlled and and uh, watched, carefully guided state. Then it can be used to, to beautify our lives, to to make life um, easier, more wholesome. Um, can help our, us with our education, our, our health problems, uh, ma- many different aspects of our life, eating and uh, warming and lighting our homes and so forth, many different, many different things. So it's not that, that energy or fire is inherently a bad thing, but it's just when it gets out of control. Like if I, if I took one of these candles and just um, put it to the edge of this cloth here and then, kind of made, and then broke up the table and made a nice little heap, you know, we could... <laughs> We could have ourselves a very exciting evening, um, but I think uh, the the congregation of St. Aidan's Church would be a bit uh, upset. But uh, so you know, as long as the fire is contained and controlled, then it's just, it's something that helps us. It's it's uh, um, useful to us. But also, this uh, this this teaching is not just talking about controlling fire; it's talking about about dispassion, about the fire going out. And this is something that um, that people, uh, particularly in the West, find find pretty disturbing. As soon as you you say, well, what does what does nibbana mean? And like this word dispassion is a translation of the Pali um, nipita or becomes dispassionate. Is uh, the verb is nibindati? It become one becomes dispassionate. And the word nibbana, nipita, nibindati. That word uh, nib or nirv in Sanskrit means to, to blow out or to, to have gone cool, to have become cool for a fire, like a fire going out. And it was a normal everyday household kind of expression. Like you'd, after you've cooked the rice, you leave it to Nibbana. You leave it to cool down for the fire to, to, to drop down. And so when you say, that when you talk about the, the goal of the spiritual life is, um, is this uh, like the blowing out of a flame, the dying of a, of a fire. Then, I notice particularly in the West, people start to get all of, kind of uncomfortable. Oh dear, it sounds all very nihilistic. And uh, you know, you, you mean that the, the goal of uh, a Buddhist life is to be extinguished? You know, this is we, we do. We go through all of this, and we we um, spend ten thousand hours on our zafu just so we can get extinguished like a dinosaur. You know, so that can become extinct. And some of the translations of Buddhist scriptures. Come, you know, I'll put in that way that um, oh, the oh, what bliss! Now I am extinct. <laughs> I have been utterly extinguished. How marvelous! And, <laughs> and it's, it's done in a well-meaning way, but to the Western eye, certainly to my eye, when I first came across this, this was a very bizarre and highly unattractive thing. I did not want to emulate the dinosaurs, as you know, nice creatures that they are, but. Um, I couldn't see that the consummation of human existence is is to be is just to to uh, be totally annihilated and sort of squished like a an unnoticed cockroach underfoot. So uh, then it becomes interesting, or one sort of the question is raised: But what does this mean? Or what is this talking about? You know, if nibbana means a, a fire going out, like the blowing out of a flame, and it's very clear the Buddha does use that analogy, like the putting out of a fire. The fire is growing cold, and uh, and something you know does shudder, because it seems very nihilistic. But that's because in our in our way of thinking in the West, for a um, when a fire goes out, it means death. The fire is dead. 
it's gone out. But in, in the Vedic uh, system, in the Vedic philosophy, um, that was not the connotation of a fire going out at all. They had a very different sense of the, the physics of it. And, and the way they looked at it was very different from the way that we do. Because they saw the fire very much as like primordial universal energy, like the, the primordial, immortal, omnipresent energy of the universe. And when an object catches fire, then when there's flames and the object is, is alight, like, uh, w and, and by analogy, when the mind is, is uh, ignited and alight and flowing out and blazing, then that energy is in, a, is in an agitated, attached, dependent, um, clinging uh, state. It is, um, it's in an inferior state. And when, uh, and when a fire goes out, rather than it being dead, what is happening is that the fire element is returning to its immortal, omnipresent, primordial state. And so too with the mind, when the mind is not flowing out into, the, into passion, into obsession, into fear and, and greed and hatred, delusion, when it's not flowing out in that way, when, it is, when uh, the, that fire is, is extinguished, then in the same way the mind returns to realize its primordial, immortal state, its, its uh, original nature. And so this is the whole connotation of a fire going out. This is what the, the, the uh, illusions of, of Nibbana or the, or the blowing out of a flame has in, the, in the, the Buddhist world, the way that the Buddha was using the term. So that um, when, when you come across in Buddhist scriptures this idea of uh, extinction or, or um, annihilation or uh, or these terms that get used, it's a, in a way a mistranslation because English doesn't really have a, a suitable term that matches it, that gives these same connotations. But this is really what it's talking about. So when we, we say that we practice the, the Buddhist path in order to, to put out the fires, um, this is not in a way of saying, you know, life is, is bad, uh, everything that we are, the, the whole energy of our being is somehow wrong and askew and uh, distorted and, and uh, all um, kind of uh, inherently out of order. But it's more that when we let go of, of uh, greed, of hatred, of delusion, when we let go of, of uh, identification with, uh, with the six senses, then the mind returns to, its, uh, to realize its original nature, to its immortal, deathless uh, quality. So that this, um, uh, in, this na in this way, the, the path that we practice, sila, samadhi, panya, virtue, uh, concentration, mental training, the development of wisdom, these are, I've, uh, I've heard referred to as the three fire extinguishers. I once came across a Dhamma talk, it was being given in London, and the, the title of it was Three Fire Extinguishers, and I thought, who, who on earth? This, this, is a, this must be a joke, and then I, I, uh, I realized, oh, very neat. <laughs> that uh, Sila Samadhi Panya, these are indeed the fire extinguishers, and when the, the fire goes out, rather than this being the, the state of, of uh, complete deadness and death, it's actually the, the state of, of total life of completely living, of uh, a state of, of uh, fulfillment, the, the uh, realization of the true nature of, of, uh, of what is, of what we are, and the, uh, the primordial uh, quality 
of of all things.